Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And oh, a swelteringly hot day. We've just all been comparing notes on how boiling hot our uh, respective offices are. But who we who we joined by today, James? Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm excited about this one. Um, it's an old old pal. Um, it's Giles Milton, and and Giles has written a number of um, really really fantastic books. Not least Nathaniel's Nutmeg, which is amazing. If you have you haven't had a look at that. Um, not about the Second World War, but I'm glad to say that he was um, converted at an early stage um, and got very stuck <laughs> in and is a best-selling author of D-Day, The Soldier's Story, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, which was a particular favourite of mine. Um, and yeah. now he's come back very, very strong with Checkmate in Berlin, um, which is a new book. Sort of a, the whole kind of what happened in Berlin at the end of the war and how it sort of went from being you know, Soviet Union and the Western Allies being allies to the Cold War. What Jaws, I think, is particularly good at is homing in on those personalities and bringing those people back to life, putting flesh on bones of people long gone. Um, and there's some particular favourites of mine in this one um, uh, from from all sides. But um, the main reason for coming on is, is, is not just to puff his book. Um, it's because it is, of course, the um, anniversary of the Potsdam Conference. And so really, that's what we're going to be homing in on. Berlin at the end of the war, Potsdam, what happened? 
how the kind of you know Europe was carved up, blah blah. Well, blah. welcome, Giles. So, so it's this sort of fortnight, isn't it? Um, around about now, end of July to the start of August, we're basically the whole of the post-war world is kind of laid out. Is is that an exaggeration, or is that pretty much covering? That is completely spot on. Basically, the 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 big the the three main wartime leaders are going to get together. And basically carve up the world. They're, they're kind of carving, you know, deciding on a new world order. Who's going to get what? Who's going to control what? This is the spoils of war. The war has just come to an end. And uh, yeah, they, they, uh, they want to work out who's going to end up running which bit of territory in Europe. It's, everything is up for grabs. It's just like this fantastic sort of uh, geopolitical game that is going to take place. But it's a very serious game because it decides who, you know, who's going to be the winner of the peace. Because as early as Tehran, they're kind of sort of they're working out what it's going to look like pretty much. And then then, you know, famously or infamously, whichever way you look at it, at Yalta, you know, it, it, it's on Yalta is in the Crimea. It's on on Stalin's turf. And don't they, you know, and, and aren't the Americans and the British led, you know, they're, they're kind of there's no doubt who's who's in charge at this point. Um, Churchill gets a little bit marginalised, doesn't he? And. But Roosevelt is only two months from death at that point. And what's so fascinating is that you've got so much of these big decisions being made in February. Then it comes to Potsdam in July 1945. And two of those three world leaders are gone. Yeah. I mean, there are several factors, that, that massive factors that change between Yalta and, and Potsdam. Um, yeah, you're right, absolutely, um, that um, Roosevelt, of course, has died. He's very, very sickly at Yalta. And uh, so many observers said he wasn't up to scratch, you know, uh, dealing with Stalin, who was just a brilliant negotiator. Um, Churchill, I mean, there's so many accounts that said Churchill was also was uh, just below par. He was drinking extremely heavily. I mean, he brought along a thousand bottles of whiskey and gin to the uh, Yalta conference. Um, <laughs> and then you get to Potsdam, of course, Roosevelt's dead. Churchill loses the election halfway through the Potsdam conference and he's packed off home and along comes Attlee, uh, you know, to take over the reins. But the biggest change of all, I think, when you get to Potsdam is that Stalin has basically got everything he wanted from Yalta because the Red Army is already in control of most of Central and Eastern Europe. So basically he's won, you know, he, 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 he's in a position of incredible strength because he's got his troops sitting in all the territories he coveted at Yalta. So that's the big difference, isn't it? It's that up till then, it's all if and when. And and uh, this is now and then, so to speak, you know, is the difference. Is that is that the deals that are being made at Yalta are kind of like, well, still including questions of what to do about Poland and questions of who will actually get which spheres of influence. But now you actually, you have those spheres marked out. And, and, and of course... Truman has got to figure Stalin out for himself. Attlee has got to figure out, you know, Stalin sort of doesn't doesn't care, I suppose, at this point, does he? He's, he's like you say, he's got what he wants. The British are figuring themselves out. The, I mean, Truman is more of a through line than Attlee is, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, mean, uh, I mean, I think well, you're raising an interesting point here because I think... Uh, 
one thing that's really changed is that Roosevelt felt that he could trust Stalin and he could yeah. manage Stalin. Yeah. He thought that, yeah. you know, he was, uh, they were key, equal players, if you like. But by the time you get to the Potsdam Conference, Truman is suspicious of, of Stalin. He, he hasn't got that sort of, he hasn't got that bond that Roosevelt had with Stalin and he doesn't trust him. And you've also, um, you've got uh, Clement Attlee and most importantly, you've got Ernest Bevin coming in as a new heavyweight in every sense, uh, Labour Foreign Secretary. And he also doesn't trust Stalin. And so everything's beginning to shift. You can almost see the first cogs of the Cold War are coming into play yeah, here. Yeah. That that wartime alliance, which has you know, worked so well for so long, is really beginning to break apart already. Why doesn't Bevin trust Stalin? Because they're men of the left, surely, uh, you know, and, and so on. The, 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 surely, if, if anyone... Or maybe it's that if anyone's going to understand that the, the, the Soviet left, it's going to be someone like Bevin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a, a very different left that Bevin is representing. Yeah, obviously. But, yeah. but I think, I mean, it's quite interesting that I, Bevin uh, sees very much eye to eye with Churchill when it comes to foreign policy and comes to dealing with the Soviet Union. And this will become even more apparent as, as the months go by. And, you know, within a few months of uh, Potsdam, we're moving into Churchill as leader of the opposition, giving his famous Iron Curtain speech which Bevin basically signs up to completely. Uh, so, you know, within eight months of Potsdam, uh, you have the new foreign secretary agreeing with Churchill that this guy in the Soviet Union cannot be trusted and we can't let him get away with everything he wants to get away with. And, and Giles, what about, what about Attlee? I mean, Attlee's been um, a very effective member of the war cabinet, but, you know, he's new to kind of, he's the new prime minister. Is there a sense that he's kind of out of his depth or does he kind of sort of... Um, or is he up to the job, would you say? Well, there's a, there's a brilliant fit picture. I mean, lots of people will be familiar with the, the famous picture of the big three at Yalta. You've got mm. Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin. And then you have the picture of the big three at Potsdam and it's Truman, Churchill and Stalin. But then, of course, Churchill, as we say, lo loses the election and you've got Attlee coming in and there's this picture of Attlee and he's this little weedy little man with a sort of skinny chest, you know, sitting in this chair looking completely swamped by the armchair. And there's, yes. um, it's very, there's the, one of the conference organisers uh, who helped with the catering and the domestic arrangements was Joan Bright Astley, who'd been working for Churchill through the war. And she looks at this, this picture of Attlee in his chair alongside Stalin and Truman, and she says, well, they're still called the big three, but, but it's not the big three anymore. And there's a real sense that, that the, the big three doesn't exist anymore. And if there is still a big three, such a thing as a big three, it's really Bevin, who, uh, as I said, is big in every sense. He's a huge guy, and he is yeah. determined to go into the conference. And, and he said his opening line was, I'm not having Britain barged around, you know. But of course... By then, it's too late. The conference is over halfway through. And I think, really, there's not much Attlee and Bevin can do. I think Stalin has just got everything he wants, you know. And so it's sort of fait accompli. Um, and, Charles, I mean, obviously, you've, you've, you've been to Potsdam, and, and it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's this, for those who don't know, there's, there's the old Frederick the Great palaces and stuff. Um, Sanssouci is a gorgeous Yeah, yeah it's absolutely it's gorgeous. Yeah, but yeah. that's not where it's held. It's held in this kind of leafy suburb you know sort of lakes nearby and the trees and and these huge villas uh, and you go down there and and it and it does seem grand but it doesn't seem like super grand i mean this is not the kind of sort of hall of mirrors at versailles kind of grand is it no. and paint a picture of 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 what what the potsdam meeting places are like you know where where this conference is held is like 
It's completely bizarre. The Sicilianhof Palace was built as a sort of fake Tudor mansion. It's a bit like you might some, find outside sort of Seven Oaks or something in the countryside outside yes. Seven Oaks. It's all half, exactly what it's like. <laughs> it's half timber, timbered with those sort of diamond leaded windows. And... S- sort of place a Russian exile would buy in, in the home <laughs> county. Absolutely, yeah. So you go inside and it's been, they preserved the conference room uh, as it was in 1945. There's this big round table that was shipped in from Moscow. They couldn't find any tables big enough. And they fixed up a few of the rooms to look pretty good. And, uh, and also they had to fix up the, the living quarters for, for Churchill and for Truman and everything. So they scavenged antiques and grand pianos and sort of nice bits of furniture to put in all the houses where the delegates will be staying. But there's an absolutely fantastic account um, by one of the uh, members of the American uh, negotiating team who says that when they arrive at the Sicilianhof Palace, as they're preparing the rooms in which the conferences are going to be held, in the rest of the palace, the Soviets are looting all the rooms and take carting away the furniture and the light fittings and stuff. You know, <laughs> it's all, amazing. Obviously, the Red Army have already they've already looted Berlin and now they've moved to Potsdam. So you've got these Soviet um, uh, gardeners planting a, a, a giant Soviet star of red geraniums in the front garden, and in the back rooms they're looting. There's lorries drawing up and pulling, taking away all the furniture. It's completely bizarre, really. Uh, and the other thing that I think is amazing is is that the, you know. Originally, the idea is to split um, Berlin three uh, three ways. Then it becomes four ways with the addition of the French. But it seems that all the kind of sort of military governors, military commanders of these 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 quarters of Berlin, a kind of prerequisite is to have a really stupid nickname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, the commandant of the American sector is uh, Colonel Frank. Howling Mad Howley. Uh, he's sort of my favourite character. And a, a, actually, a big, a big... He's actually brilliant, isn't he? A, a big character in the post-war era. He sort of parachuted into the American sector of Berlin. And um, he's going to... He's a sort of big American cowboy. And he's going to run it as his own personal fiefdom. But he's very effective. You know, he's been in charge of logistics during the war. He was sent into Cherbourg soon after D-Day. He was sent into Paris and, and really kept five million starving Parisians alive, you know... Uh, uh, in the summer of 40, uh, 44. So he's take, sent into Berlin as, in charge of the American sector. And then you've got the British sector, which is put in charge of um, Brigadier Robert Looney Hind, um, who's another fantastic <laughs> character, <laughs> a, a product of, of British India. He's been sort of parachuted out of the road. You don't say. <laughs> I mean, honestly. He, he knows Berlin a little bit because he was there in 1936 for the infamous, infamous Olympics. He was, he was on... Um, Changed Britain. a bit, though, hadn't it, by then, let's face <laughs> yes. it. But he was in Britain's polo team. Uh, you know, obviously he had to be in the polo team. Um, and so he knows... Pig-sticking team. Exactly, it's all that sort of stuff. And he's going to run the British sector um, a bit like he's... Uh, it's a sort of game of cricket, you know. He's going to be the umpire. He's going to be fair-handed, even-minded... And, um, you know, but but again, he's been in charge of logistics as well. So actually, these are not stupid choices. But what's fascinating about these characters and indeed their Soviet opposite number is they are going to wield immense power. I mean, they literally have the power of life and death over over, you know, two and a half million Berliners in their sectors. Um, so it, it, fascinating for, you know, these people sort of seemingly coming from nowhere, uh, giving running their sectors virtually as like Roman emperors. I mean, Charles, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got a colonel and you've got a brigadier. I mean, you, you know, you'd expect a kind of, you know, three star at the very least, wouldn't you? I mean, 
I mean, this was a source of great grievance for Howling Mad Howley. He said, look, there I am. Here I am. Um, in you know, representing the most powerful country in the world, and I'm only a colonel. It really rankled, and I, I, I was looking surprised. at his, uh, his personal <laughs> diaries, which are absolutely fantastic. He kept a day-to-day record of everything that happened, no holes barred in his diaries, which they're in. Uh, I'm sure you know the uh, Army College uh, archives in Pennsylvania. They're all there, yeah. and um, this grievance really rankled with him, but. Um, but, you know, he was highly effective. Um, he was brilliant at dealing with uh, his um, I- extremely difficult uh, and obstreperous uh, Soviet opposite number, who was General Alexander Kotikov, who ran, ran the Soviet sector. So, yeah, you, what you get, and this is all, of course, come out of the Potsdam uh, conference, is you get uh, these three uh, commandants, and then obviously the French come in slightly later, and they are going to be doing battle, you know, inside Berlin, battle for control of Berlin and battle for control of, of Germany as well. Um, how, how quickly does that start to, you know, how, does, how quickly does it start to curdle, as it were? Very, very soon after, actually. So, I mean, Colonel Howley, when he comes into Berlin, he writes in his diary, um, I came into Berlin thinking that the Germans were the enemy. And he said, I realised within a matter of days that the Soviets are our enemy. And this is where the whole story becomes extremely interesting because basically Colonel Howley declares, single-handedly declares war on his Soviet opposite number. And I suppose what, what drew me to the story is that um, these, uh, these characters fighting their own personal battles inside Berlin a sort of perfect um, microcosm of the geopolitical fallout that's taking place on a much bigger scale with the presidents and the prime ministers at, yeah. at Potsdam or, or elsewhere. I was able to sort of tell this story um, in, this, in this sort of um, exquisite little personal battlefield that's taking place inside the, this organisation called the Kommandatura in Berlin, which is where they fight their battles. And is it, uh, is it the chicken or the egg in this? It, it, who's reflecting on... Uh, uh, whose behaviour, as it were, or attitude? Is it is it that it turns out you can't rub along with the Soviets on this lower level, or is it coming from above? You know, it, it, or is it a is it a sort of simultaneous continuum of friction? If it, do, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Is, is, is it is it the politicians are getting are, get, are getting stuff from the people at the coalface of this cooperation, saying you know we just can't deal with the Soviets; it's impossible. Or is it going the other way? Is it going? We can't deal with the Soviets. This is impossible. So make life difficult for them. No. So it's very much coming from from Whitehall and from Washington. The 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 uh, the line is: these are our wartime allies. We want to keep this alliance going. You have got to work with them, which is what Brigadier Looney Hind tries to do on behalf of the British. But Colonel Howley realizes that you simply can't. And and, and the arguments that take place in the Commandatura, which is. <clears throat> This building where they sit around a long table and they try and thrash out the problems. And it's fascinating because every single word ever uttered inside that building was noted down verbatim. So we have every argument recorded. And so, wow. so it's, you, 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 you have arguments. So in the early days, for example, they all agree that um, Berliners have to be uh, living on rationed food because there's very limited amounts of rations. But who gets the most rations? And this becomes one of the first great arguments. So, so Colonel Howley and Brigadier Hine say, well, obviously, it should be the sick and the infirm, the elderly. And the Soviet opposite numbers say, um, hold on, no, it should be the most important people. It should be the politicians and the journalists. They're, the, they're shaping opinion. And, um, and Colonel Howley <laughs> turns to his Soviet opposite number and he says, you can't kick a lady when she's down. 
And the Soviet commandant smiles at him and says, my dear Colonel Howley, that is exactly when you should kick them. Um, and, and that's <laughs> wow. an example of just how no one is going to see eye to eye. And obviously that's just one tiny example. But this so they're, just, they're just coming at it from just totally different worldviews. Everything about it is just, every parameter is different, isn't it? It is. And uh, another example being denazification, you know, um, which is that the the uh, Western allies have decided that Berlin and Germany has to be denazified. You know, Nazis have to be ruthlessly tracked and hunted and brought to justice. Whereas the Soviets are already thinking, hold on, these guys could be pretty useful to us. And they're prepared to, you know, issue them carte blanche, you know, clean slate and then bring them on board and use them. Um, Of course, as you well know, uh, the the Americans will also be doing this uh, quietly, privately. We have opposite Operation Paperclip, you know, grabbing all the the scientists and everything. But the Soviets really from day one, long before the Western Allies arrive in Berlin, they're trying to round up all the useful and influential ex-Nazis and bring them on board. Gosh. Uh, and what about kind of life in Berlin? I mean, how, I mean, you know, it's it's sort of ground zero, isn't it, for most Berliners? I mean, you, you've got the trauma of kind of being raped. You've got the trauma of kind of, uh, of lots of menfolk being killed in the final battles and before that. You've got a city that is utterly devastated. I mean, you know, it's the Berliners who are clearing up all the rubble, isn't it? And making these huge mounds and hills out of, you know, put, piling the rubble around the old flat towers and turning them into hills and things. I mean, you know, but but who's organising all that? And is it, are there different rules for different sectors? Well, yeah. I mean, so you've got to picture a, a city in absolute ruin. So the Brits and Americans have obviously been bombing it from the air for years. Uh, the Red Army's um, then come in and completed the, you know, the t- destruction of the place. You know, there's no, there's no water, there's no electricity, there's no gas, there's no functioning government at the very beginning. This is a city, you know, w- w- without anything, and it's also filled with Berliners who are starving. So the first people in are, are the are the Soviet soldiers, the Red Army commit appalling atrocities, particularly against women. I mean, the, the, the accounts of rape and abuse are just... I mean, even today, they're horrific to read some of the diaries of the women who are trapped in Berlin. The Soviets, um, they have really two months before the Western Allies arrive... And they use those two months. Um, admittedly, they do get some, they get the water supplies going and they start bringing in electricity and some food into the city. But they also take the opportunity to simply loot and pillage the city. You know, Berlin, I mean, many listeners will have been to Berlin. They'll know the, the great museums of Berlin. Berlin was one of the great cultural capitals of, of Western Europe. Those, uh, all those treasures had been moved into the Flakturm by the Nazis, you know, to, uh, for safekeeping. And the, the, the Soviets simply crate all these treasures up and cart them off to Moscow. Thousands and thousands of crates are sent off to Moscow as war spoils, basically. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because there were loads and loads of great works of art, weren't there, in some of the flak towers, and they were just, and they were burned, but they obviously weren't burned. There was a kind of, there was a massive theft, and then they kind of set fire to one of the rooms, and suddenly there were no paintings left. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, these are some of the really the greatest treasures of, you know, Western civilization. I mean, one just to, to give one example, it's the famous Schliemann gold, the so-called gold from Troy, which was, yes. that was one of the early things yes. carted off to um, to Moscow. And in fact, that is still in Moscow. And if you go to what, the Berlin Museum, there's an empty case, you know, saying uh, this is still still 
held as war loot. So, um, so <laughs> that's amazing, yeah, I mean, isn't it? The Moscow Museum alone received twelve and a half thousand massive wooden crates full of, you know, Renaissance treasures, Byzantine altars, Chinese, Japanese ceramics. Off they went, uh, crated up and sent off to Moscow. So they, the Soviets knew they had two months to loot the city, two months before the Western Allies came in, were allowed in. And then, of course, and then hot on the heels of them coming into the city, then you have the Potsdam Conference. So this is, this is a unique window of opportunity for anyone who wants to steal and loot, you know, as much as possible, basically. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I are talking to Giles Milton. We had to insert a break because none of us would shut up. Essentially a sort of collapse into into anarchy um, uh, in Berlin. How are Berliners, who after all have been have had strong government for um, uh, more than a, you know, more than a decade. How are they re- dealing with the, the sort of vacuum of authority that, that follows? Because that must be that must be quite a, aside from defeat. You know, uh, from a government that's that's promised ultimate victory, is it sort of USP? You know, that what what's happening to Germans having to get their heads around this sort of change of circumstances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the term strong government. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I mean, and now there is no government. Um, so so they are um horrified, obviously, when the Red Army move in and commit all their atrocities and uh, yep. drunkenness and rape. They're desperate for the Americans and Brits to come in. And also, uh, you know, I read a lot of uh, people's diaries from this period. They're all wondering which sector they're going to fall in because they all know the city's going to be divided up, but they have no idea where the sector boundaries are, are going to be, basically. So um, it's not until, um, well, it's it's, uh, beginning of July when the Brits and Americans move in and then they discover which sectors uh, they're going to fall into. And they're all sort of praying that they're going to be in the western sectors of the city. But, you know, life is incredibly difficult. I mean, James touched on the the uh, rubble women, as they were called. So the women, I mean, Berlin was largely a city of women at this point. They were kind of conscripted in by the Soviets uh, uh, to clear up, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of tons of rubble. I mean, the streets are completely blocked in nineteen in the uh, in nineteen forty five when the Soviets move into the city. So life is tough. Um, uh, there's no food, and they're desperate for some sort of semblance of of normality. But they know this won't happen uh, in t- until the Western Allies move in. Yes, because I mean, after all, in the in the run up to defeat, you've got all the all all the German armies trying to get west, haven't you, to get away from the Red Army. You've got the suicide panics all across Germany and for fear of the Red Army, haven't you? So people people kind of know exactly what they're what 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 might be coming their way. Um is and so how soon does Berlin take on a sort of semblance of of order well, after the no, after exactly the... what I was going to say I mean yeah but you know exactly when, when does when does sort of you know something close to normality ever you know how long does it take to repair it's absolutely remarkable this part of the story I think because as soon as I mean the Soviets have done some work but largely for their sector they've sort of ignored the western sectors prior to the arrival of the Brits, British and Americans apart from looting them 
But as soon as a cow, um, Howling Mad Howley and Brigadier Hind move into their sectors with a, a large number of troops, some sort of 25,000 troops each, um, and also a team of experts who they've been training up for months and months and months, it's absolutely remarkable how quickly they, res- they restore water um, sewage, uh, electricity, gas supplies. I mean, these are, you know, it's, these are not functioning around the clock and everything, but they bring in medication. They get every single hospital in the British sector have been completely trashed. They get those up and running. Brigadier Hind brings in enormous quantities of medication, supplies, all sorts of, you know, uh, vaccine supplies, etc. And, you know, this is, they're, they're faced with a pandemic on a, on a grand scale. I mean, you know, uh, forget the pandemic now. This is, this is really, really serious what's taking place in Berlin. There's typhus in the city and all that sort of stuff, yeah, isn't there? So a things, di- things are really bad. There's diphtheria, there's dysentery, there's absolutely everything. Yeah. Eight out of every ten newborn babies uh, are dying, you know. This is a serious oh, I know, that situation. is unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a truly horrific statistic. Yeah, yeah. But one of the one of the, I mean, most fascinating problems that face uh, Hind and Howley is that Berlin has traditionally been fed uh, but from farmland which lies to the east of the city. And that farmland is now in the hands of uh, the Soviets, as are the principal um, electricity generators and power supplies for the city. So this means that from day one, when the Western Allies arrive in Berlin, they will be dependent on the Soviets for food, for electricity uh, and for gas supplies. Now, as long as the old wartime alliance keeps going, as long as they stay friendly with their Soviet partners, you know, you know, theoretically, all well and good. But imagine the day, you know, when they fall out, when this wartime partnership falls to pieces. Well, what happens then? Um, the Western sectors are still going to be dependent on Stalin, effectively, for all the food and electricity supplies they need for their sectors. And you can begin to see, you know, the, the problems that are, are going to arise here. Because lest anyone forget, Berlin is, uh, the divided capital of Berlin is deep inside the Soviet sector. You know, Germany's been, we didn't say this at the beginning, and perhaps sort of said that Germany's been divided into uh, east and west, with the Soviets in the east, and the Germans and Brits, and later the French, in the west. But Berlin sits like an island, you know, in the middle of the uh, Soviet sector. It's almost like a, a sort of medieval well, castle, it's, it's, it's about, it, it, Yes, because it's... it's... The dividing line is sort of roughly the Elba, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So, yeah. so it's so so what's that? That's about sort of seventy, eighty miles from Berlin, something like that. Yeah, it's about a bit, even a bit more than that. And 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 the the Western partners have agreed with their Soviet partners that they will have the use of a, an autobahn uh, leading into Berlin, the use of a railway line leading into Berlin, and some air corridors also that will uh, lead into Berlin. But, I mean, I think the image of a medieval castle is quite a good one because, um, you know, if, you have to think that if, if Stalin should want to cut off this, this castle, he can literally pull up the drawbridges. You know, he can shut down that autobahn. He can block that railway line. And you've got the Western powers inside Berlin with their garrison troops unable to supply them, unable to bring in food and fuel and what have you, and potentially in a terribly desperate situation. And of course, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Well, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what happens. He does, Berlin That's Ellis. exactly what he does. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is one of the, the sort of flaws, really, both born out of Yalta and also out of Potsdam, is that the Western allies never built into the, their dealings with Stalin a guarantee 
that they would be able to continue to use the autobahn and the railway line um, into Berlin. And using those lines, you know, don't forget they've got to bring in absolutely everything they need, not only for their garrison troops, 25,000 for each sector, but also for 2.4 million Berliners for whose lives they are now totally responsible. So, uh, you know, uh, as we say, Stalin is, of course, going to cut uh, the food supplies, the electricity supplies to the Western sectors, leaving uh, the Brigadier Hind and Colonel Howley with a pretty major problem on their hands. Um, how how soon does it become clear that that's what the Soviets are going to do? Because the because the sort of the traditional historiography isn't this is a couple of years before where everyone's actually getting along fine. The Americans sort of try and demilitarize. They've lost their appetite appetite for war, you know, blah blah blah, and so on. And then basically realize that maybe that that isn't going to work out for them. How soon is it clear that Stalin is going to? going to do this i think it's much sooner than uh is normally you know it no- normally uh you find in the history books i think already uh on the ground in 1945 things are get- beginning to go badly wrong i think uh, howley is really the first to realize that he can no longer do business with the soviets and i think everything becomes comes out into the public uh, with the famous churchill's famous iron curtain speech which of course he go he's invited to america by truman not as prime minister any longer he's leader of the opposition he goes to fulton missouri and delivers this incredibly powerful speech basically saying that stalin's the enemy now um, you know he, he doesn't pull his punches uh, and it's immensely controversial now now we see that speech as we, you know well of course he he pretty much got it right but at the time Churchill was accused by, you know, pretty much all and sundry of deliberately stoking, you know, uh, this uh, anti-American, uh, anti-Soviet feeling in, in America yeah. and in the West. Um, he was lambasted in the press in America. He was lambasted in Parliament in, in, uh, in Westminster. But, you know, uh, uh, pretty much unique among Labour politicians is uh, uh, Ernst Bevin, Ernest Bevin, the Labour Foreign Secretary, thought that Churchill had got it absolutely right. Stalin could not be trusted. Gosh, it's fascinating. Yes, because Churchill was sort of accused of trying to make political space for himself, wasn't he? Because yeah. He, because he'd lost the election and he didn't have any, he had no sort of sense of direction and the, and the Labour government was enacting all the sort of beverage stuff that people wanted. And he, he was sort of accused of groping for groping for meaning in that sort of post-war phase. Yeah. Um, but like you say, yeah, yeah, it turns out it happened to, happened to be right as well. I know, and, but I think there were there were two other things that happened that spring which really changed everything. So we're spring forty six here. One really incredibly important thing that uh, happened was that a young Soviet cipher clerk in the embassy in uh, the Soviet embassy in Canada called Igor Gozenko, he defected to the West and he defected with one hundred and ten highly incriminating do- um, uh, documents, which uh, set forth really the fact that the Soviets had been spying on the American uh, 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 nuclear programme. And this was absolute dynamite because um, no one in Washington and and Whitehall wanted to believe this. But when Igor Gosenko defects with these documents, clearly setting out that they had, had, uh, the Soviets had infiltrated the the nuclear programme, this was a massive shock, you know. And, and actually, to take it right back to Potsdam... It, well, yes, I was just going to say, after all, Truman says to, to Stalin, doesn't he, I, we've got this 
thing up our sleeve, doesn't he? Well, he ne- uh, yeah, but he never says we have developed a nuclear weapon. He says we've developed a, a bomb of uncommon strength, you know. <laughs> and he wonders um, if, if uh, Stalin has clocked that this is a nuclear bomb and actually discusses it with Churchill. And Churchill says, no, 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 I don't think he, under- I don't think he understood what you were trying to say. But in fact, that night, uh, Stalin goes straight back to uh, his advisers and begins um, talking about... Uh, uh, the Soviet nuclear programme. We know this from uh, Marshal Zhukov's memoirs. But, so but at clearly, this point, does Stalin already know it? He does already know so, before no, Truman cle- Clearly, Stalin does know it. And so all those documents that Igor Gazenko, uh, you know, has, uh, later brings to the West show that Stalin or- already knows exactly what's taking place with the Trinity nuclear test, etc. He knows um, uh, all about the nuclear programme and indeed has got his hands on some pretty significant technological data that um, he's going to used in the Soviet Union. It's no coincidence, isn't it, that the um, the Berlin airlift and the announcement of the nuclear, the Soviets have got atomic power. Isn't that happened the same year? That's both 1948, isn't it? I think the, uh, the Soviet announcement is le- comes later. I mean, the, uh, the airlift is still, uh, you still have America as the only nuclear power. I think I've got my dates right there, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, well, I just know that they, you know, they get, yeah. they get an atomic bomb, you know, unspeakably quickly. I mean, it's, yes. it is a matter of a few years after the war and after, no, that's, after the abso- that's absolutely and everyone's the case. absolutely shocked and stunned by this. You know, how could they have done it so quickly? And 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 largely, uh, and there are two. I mean, one of the reasons is that they've stolen so much technological data from the Americans, but also I think the uh, the the incredible spate of kidnappings of uh, of the Germans, nuclear scientists, and rocket scientists that took place um, in the spring of 1945 have greatly aided. Uh, the Soviet program as well. So, uh, you know, they're, they're dependent. A lot of stuff they're getting from Germany and from the West in developing their weapons program. Giles, I'm really interested also that, that, you know, you've got this sort of amazing geopolitics sort of going on. And yet the, other, the flip side is that you've got all these Berliners sort of desperately trying to make sense of this totally crumbled world of sort of Armageddon all around them and, and of, of sort of this sort of appalling dystopia that's sort of taken place in Berlin. I mean, where do you, where, where were you getting your kind of sources for this? Because there's some fascinating diaries, aren't there, that are being kept at this time of people in Berlin at the time and, you know, day-to-day life and this sort of very, you know, creating a very vivid picture of, of how sort of cheek by jowl the whole existence was. Yeah, yeah. Well, a, a bit like you, I spend much of my life in the archives, sort of delving through this sort of stuff. And I try, I wanted to tell the story as much as possible from original letters, diaries of people who were there, you know, on the ground. And um, what, what's fascinating, I think, reading the diaries of Berliners and then reading the diaries of, of, of British and American servicemen is that there are two completely, I was going to say parallel worlds, but they're almost parallel universes taking place in Berlin at the time. So for ordinary Berliners, it's utterly miserable. They're starving. There's no food. There's no fuel. Uh, and of course, you know, the winter of 1946, don't forget, is one of the coldest winters on record. And, and, and no, no houses in Berlin have got any windows. So it's minus 26 in Berlin and they've got no food, no means of cooking and no, and no firewood or, 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 or central heating, you know. And then you've got, on the other hand, you've got the Allied uh, soldiers who are living in their garrisons, excuse me, in the west of the city. And they are living a life of Riley. You know, they've got um, unlimited supplies of food and particularly they've got unlimited supplies of cigarettes and cigarettes becomes the currency of choice in Berlin. Cigarettes are used uh, on the black market. Everything is exchanged for cigarettes and they have they have unlimited uh, access to these cigarettes. So. 
British and American servicemen became, you know, lords of all they surveyed in Berlin. And they could buy anything from women and sex to old masters and Leica cameras. You know, they, they were living a pretty good life there. And also, you know, I mean, within, within uh, literally weeks of the Allied servicemen coming into Berlin, they've opened bars, they've opened nightclubs, um, and, you know, they go in there, they get drunk, they chat up women. Of course, fraternisation in the early days was strictly banned. No Allied serviceman was allowed to even talk to a Berlin woman, let alone chat her up. And uh, the fine for chatting up a Berlin woman was $65, which leads to the phrase the $65 question um but they used to argue uh tongue in cheek that um what was it um uh, uh, fraternization no what was it um convert conversation without oh i can't remember the exact phrase now it's, it's gone from but anyway they were prepared to take the risk to, to chat up sure. and sleep with these uh with these women yeah berlin women i've got to say i mean i don't know why you said on this and having done all this this research but i've uh, not the film but i thought the novel um the good german was was absolutely fantastic in its depiction of of uh, of Berlin life immediately after the war, the Joseph Cannon novel. I don't know if you've ever read it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the life. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of hard to imagine a city where everything has collapsed. And I think one thing uh, that also struck me in in the diaries of the time is the massive influx of refugees coming into the city. This was right. one, of the, one of the massive problems uh, that faced yeah. um, well, both the Soviets and the Western powers. But this, this, in all the diaries I read, they all talk of this, that tens of thousands of starving and penniless refugees were pouring in from the east um, on a daily basis. And they had to be dealt with, they had to be fed, they had to be sheltered and looked after. And they were all in, most of them are in a state of complete trauma because they'd come from uh, Eastern Prussia, they'd come from uh, the territories occupied by the Red Army and, and life had not been pleasant uh, for those people. So they came into the city traumatised and uh, this was uh, to, to turn into a major humanitarian catastrophe and of course uh, built into the Potsdam Agreement was that Germans, ethnic Germans were going to be expelled from all the territories which were now to become part of the Soviet sphere of uh, influence how many was that? Well it was between 11 and 12 million Germans expelled, imagine I mean this is just, it's just enormous uh, you know humanitarian crisis to be dealt with on the streets of Berlin I mean it's the most extraordinary thing isn't it that, that, that before the war it the German state is trying to sort of uh, define who's German, then hoover them up into Germany to, you know, basically to bust up its European rivals. And at the end of the war, no one particularly cares about where Germans live. As long as you know, they're, they're moved in vast amounts. They're, they're expelled. And that, 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 that notion of, of what and where Germany is has been completely flipped on its head, hasn't it? Germany is where the um, allied powers say it is from now on. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah. But we're not interested in what you think. And it's it's it, you know that 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 from that intention of the Nazi state to the result is quite the most amazing reversal, isn't it? it you never get what you want in politics, and that's a fantastic example of how that that has happened. I know. No, you know, you, you just have to look at the maps that were produced at Potsdam. It's just like, oh, we'll just move that border a few hundred miles west, yeah. and we'll move that one, you know, three hundred miles east. But these had consequences. So, you know, I'm I'm talking to you now from uh, uh, from France, and there's an elderly German woman who lives in the house opposite me, and she was one of those people who got kicked out in 1945. And she no. told me, she told me uh, last year, she told me her story of being kicked out of of Silesia. The Red Army comes in. They have to flee at a moment's notice. Her her, her parents and her three uh, brothers and sisters. And um, 
They flee with nothing. They are literally kicked out. They, they have to cross Germany on foot. Uh, it's, a abs- it's a desperate journey from Silesia across territory now controlled by the Red Army. Um, they, and she has these stories of like swimming rivers and everything. So, you know, these major rivers that they have to cross. And she told, told me stories of, um, and this was in winter when they were crossing these rivers and her father would swim across, carrying one child at a time, holding on, clinging onto his neck while they swam across the river. Then he'd swim back again, get the next one. And she was the youngest and she was the last one left on the opposite bank, oh, absolutely terrified as, as a young girl, waiting and hoping that her father was going to make it back across the river to bring her to safety you know i mean so we kind of forget you know you read these things and you forget my god these had you know significant consequences for people on the ground yeah and the last thing i'd love to i'd love to ask you giles is is you know where where did you do you find did you find yourself sort of having an almost sympathy for the germans at the end i mean or do you sort of feel i mean did you do you feel that the crimes of the nazi germany were so appalling that they sort of all had it coming or or, or can you feel huge amount of sympathy for those germans those berliners bewildered berliners that are stuck in the city split devastated quartered off etc I think you have to when you read the the accounts. Um, I mean, it's worth pointing out that Berlin was never really a Nazi city, even no. though uh, even though it was capital of the Thousand Year Reich. You know, a lot of people in Berlin did not support uh, Hitler or the Nazis. And I don't know, you know, when you read these harrowing accounts of just what they went through, I, I think you'd have to have a, a pretty a heart of steel not to feel some sort of thim- sympathy for what they lived through uh, in the aftermath. You know, um, it was. It was I, I'm a re- I, I'm a reap the whirlwind guy. I'm afraid. Really. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel I feel I feel when you consider what was done in the in the east, um, uh, in the name of it. Um, I, 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 I know what you mean, but I find it very, very, I find, I'm f- extremely conflicted on how sorry I feel for um, German people at the end of the war. I really am. I, uh, I, and it's, it's just me, but that's how I feel about it. It's, no, I, I think it's such a hot potato. It's such, it's such a, it's such an interesting thing because I think, you know, one can't help what one feels. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a reaction to it. I'm, I'm, I'm rather with you, Jazz, actually, um, Rather than the hard-hearted owl approach to no, I'm a hard-hearted bastard. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, uh, you know, I, one of the diaries I use, which is fantastic, is by this woman called Ruth Andreas Friedrich, and I mean, yes, you know, yes, she, and, and her her diary is incredible. I mean, she literally every day she recounts what's taking place. Now, she, massive danger to herself and her close friends, had run this incredible um, resistance circuit inside Berlin for the duration of the war, and you kind of, when you read that, you sort of. Uh, you do have a different perspective. Al, I can, te- I can see your point of view, definitely, very definitely. A lot of people, you know, got what, yeah. exactly what they deserved, but other people didn't, you know. And there are, chil- there are young children in yeah. the city as well. Uh, uh, and, well, uh, yes, of co- of, I mean, of course, so that, the, but that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, uh, it's uh, it, the, the, the sheer calamity of the end of the war, though, I think is a thing that people use the word forgotten too much about Second World War history that's faded from view, you know, VE Day, May 8th, as far as, as far as we're concerned, Humphrey Littleton blows his trumpet outside Buckingham Palace. The crowds all celebrate. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and then v, VJ Day, you know, that uh, uh, American ratings snog anonymous women on the streets and everything's fine and it's all back to normal. Whereas, in fact, in Europe, just the sheer number of displaced persons, that problem goes on for forever well there's been for, some fantastic stuff I months mean, there's, and months there's, and months you know there's Gitta Sereni's amazing work the, the German trauma or whatever it's called and then there's yeah. um 
Um, Keith Lowe's written about this, hasn't he? And, and um, there's this new book, Aftermath, which is mm. fascinating. Yeah. You know, which which yes. is very much in your camp, out. But um, I can actually see it yeah, behind you. On the, I can see it behind you on the shelf, actually. <laughs> Oh, really? That's, a, that's not very tactful, was it? It's funny, like, like I mean, not funny, but reading the diaries of the of the guys travelling with Brigadier Hind into into Berlin in 1945, you just you kind of forget just how devastated Western Europe was. I mean, that, the whole place was trashed. You know, it was in complete ruins. And and thank yeah. goodness, you know, George Marshall came along and, uh, with his uh, with his bid to rebuild his the continent. Yeah. You know? yeah, with his checkbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks. Thank you so much, Charles. I mean, again, this is uh, this is a sort of a chapter that tends not to be. Um, uh, I, I mean, I would like to say I'm loath to use the word forgotten, but, but t- t- tends not to be talked about. And it, and that you've got the, the you know the the, the maneuvering at the Potsdam conference, and then what it very directly translates to in people's experience in Germany, and the, and the sort of attempt to knit a divided Germany back together is um is fascinating. Thank you so much. Well thanks for thanks very yeah, much. No, it's on. Good, good to see you, Giles. So take care. And hello Sam. <laughs> and hello Sam, our mutual friend Sam. Let's check that in at the end. <laughs> Brilliant. All thanks right, everyone care, for mate. listening. Cheerio, Cheerio. bye bye. 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 bye.